The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, we continue in our summer series, What the Bible Says About. And then I got input from you all over the course of about two or three months. Thirty topics of interest were submitted. Had to narrow it down to, I think, about 11 or 12. Today we're actually dealing with the tenth topic in our series, What the Bible Says About whatever topic of interest you had. And today it's, what does the Bible have to say about environmentalism? Yeah, I'm serious. Environmentalism. And this is the tenth sermon in the series, but environmentalism is not number ten because it came in tenth in terms of interest. As a matter of fact, it was at the very top in terms of interest from you to me, which was interesting. But I couldn't do it up front in June or even in July because I knew in order to tackle that mammoth challenge of doing environmentalism, I had some research and reading to do, and so, boy, I want to push that to the end. And that's what I've been doing, is actually doing some reading and research this summer, trying to get a grip and wrap my mind around this issue of the behemoth of environmentalism. How in the world do you approach that? But that's what we're going to try to do today, from a a biblical point of view. What does the Bible say about environmentalism? Well, I didn't know the Bible had anything to say about environmentalism. Maybe that crossed your mind when you heard about it. Well, it depends upon what you mean by environmentalism. Here's what I don't mean by environmentalism as I'm talking today. Should Christians recycle aluminum cans? Should Christians litter? Do you like to drink clean water? Everybody likes clean water. It's like a no-brainer. No one wants dirty water or dirty air. So we're not going to be real superficial today. That is not what I'm talking about. I recycle cans, but I am not an environmentalist and don't believe in the worldview of environmentalism. These are two totally different things. People were recycling cans and newspapers long before the environmentalist movement. Long before. It's not the issue at hand. That's not what I'm talking about. Well, what are you talking about? PC? Rather, I'm talking today about environmentalism as an ideology, a distinct worldview, a specific philosophy and way of life. A recent or the recent phenomenon of the last three decades that has coalesced into a holistic, systematized way of life to become an imposing social and political movement. as well as a world and life view for literally millions, if not billions of people all over the world. It's the latest ism in the history of isms for humanity. I'm talking about the environmentalism represented by the little girl I saw on the Home Improvement Channel last Friday, just a few days ago. Kid you not. Who simply introduced herself as follows. Hi, I'm Michelle. I'm 11 and I'm an environmentalist. That was it. She took on environmentalism as her very identity, her purpose for existence and living life. The question is, well, what was her purpose in existence for living life? And for her as an environmentalist, it was to save the earth. That's their mantra. So this morning, it's my task to identify and expose the basic ultimate presuppositions of environmentalism as a complete system of thought. And then compare and contrast those presuppositions or ultimate assumptions 
of what environmentalists believe. Compare and contrast those with biblical truth or biblical presuppositions as they intersect and collide. And they do. We have a collision of worldviews here at stake. So I'm not going to address just one item on the multifaceted environmentalist agenda. So this is not a sermon about global warming. This is not a, a sermon about vegetarianism. That, that approach is too myopic. All these particular items that I just mentioned fall under the bigger umbrella, the bigger rubric of environmentalism, which is all-encompassing in terms of a way of life and viewing the world. Before we get started, just a reminder, there was no such thing as environmentalism in the 1950s. This was not an issue that your parents had to deal with or your grandparents. Environmentalism as an all-encompassing system of thought has its roots in the 1960s when the seeds were first planted. There were many catalysts, but some key catalysts that started or planted seeds to the current environmentalist worldview. Two, Rachel Carson, 1962, wrote a best-selling book called Silent Spring. It was all about her hypothesis about the effects, the damaging effects of DDT, which is a, an uh, insecticide or pesticide that they sprayed particularly to kill mosquitoes here in the United States. The book created an outrage among the public to the point that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was created by the U.S. government as a result of this book written by this woman. Another byproduct of her book and the outrage that it created, by the way, was it's a hypothesis. She didn't really have this comprehensively established as fact scientifically. So the EPA was created and then eventually DDT was banned in 1972 and hasn't been used since. So that's Rachel Carson, another influential person in the 1960s that gave birth to the current environmentalist movement is a guy named Paul Ehrlich, who actually is at Stanford University today. He wrote a book called The Population Bomb, 1968. He said a lot of ridiculous, false things in that book. Basically, his thesis was the planet is overpopulated. There are too many people. People need to stop having babies. We need to implement government strategies to keep people from having babies. So he obviously he's an abortion advocate, euthanasia advocate. Uh, advocate. And he predicted that uh, population uh, explosion was so bad that India would not be able to survive beyond 1971. You can go back and read his book. And see, it's, it reads like fiction today. But it created a tumult, very influential, helped give birth to the modern environmentalist movement. So that was in the 60s. Then environmentalism as a movement and a worldview came to its own with Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, written in the early 1990s. I kid you not. Very influential book. I read, the, I read the book so that in the event that you didn't have time to read it, I read it for you. Not just a book on global warming either. That's what surprised me as I read it. It wasn't just about global warming, not at all. It was actually uh, a comprehensive uh, and holistic synthesis and approach to environmentalism as a way of life and as a worldview. Since its publication in the early 1990s, Al Gore's Earth in the Balance has become the definitive manifesto for the current worldwide environmentalist cause. It was Al Gore who introduced global warming to the world. Seriously. Amazing impact that book had. He popularized the concept and is, and is its most formidable spokesperson to date. 
Just so you know, there was no such thing as global warming in the 1970s when I was in elementary school. Never heard the phrase. There was no such thing as global warming when I was in high school or in college. Never heard the phrase or the concept, ever. Then his book came out in the early 1990s. Had a huge impact. So it wasn't until Gore's book that global warming was introduced to society and eventually trickled down into our public schools all across America and the world. And for the last 14 years now, a chapter, and it's the last chapter in his book, out of Gore's book, has become required curriculum in literally thousands and thousands of public schools across America. The chapter in the book is called A Global Marshall Plan that he proposed to become curriculum in public schools, and in fact it did. And he had the wherewithal to pull it off because at that time he was one of the most influential politicians in the world. In his book he said he entered politics in the 70s pretty much for the sole purpose of educating the world about climate change, global warming, its imminent threat, and that he wanted to educate the world, change the world, and save the world. That's from his own mouth, in his own book. And that has been his life's cause. And he has been very successful. And it was Al Gore, as a result of being an influential position of government as a senator, as the vice president, as a presidential candidate that he was able to actually implement legislation on, in environmentalism and government policies to codify it perpetually here in America. So I can't underestimate or underscore how influential he has been. So it's trickled down, like I said, into public schools today, uh, so much so that it has become required curriculum in many schools. And he says, and I quote, it has become history's largest environmental education program for children in school. History's largest Al Gore's curriculum that is currently called the Globe Curriculum. In light of that, if you are a product of the public school system in the last 15 years, then no doubt you may have been indoctrinated with Gore's man-made global warming hypothesis and his environmentalist worldview. Today, I offer you an alternate point of view to consider, primarily from Scripture. So let's go to the outline and let's see what the Bible has to say, if it does, about environmentalism. Six points I want to leave with you from Scripture, and then a challenge. Let's go ahead and do it. This was actually, I had a lot of fun researching this and putting this together. Um, so let's go on. What does the Bible have to say? By the way, there's a definition of environmentalism, again, just to keep our focus here. We don't get sidetracked. Environmentalism. What is it? What am I talking about? A secular worldview. Okay, it's the worldview I'm talking about. What's a worldview? A worldview is a comprehensive paradigm of how you view the world and all of life. It's the prism by which you interpret everything in life based on your convictions, your beliefs, your presuppositions, your ultimate understanding, your basic assumptions about life. Worldview. Islam is a worldview. They view life and live life based on their paradigm of the theology of Islam. Christianity is a worldview. We interpret life based on the Bible. Communism is a worldview. Marxism is a worldview. It is a grid by which you interpret all of life. Environmentalism is also a worldview, a comprehensive spectrum by which you see, interpret, and live all of life. That's what I'm talking about. So environmentalism is a secular worldview, a non-biblical worldview, a theist, uh, an atheistic worldview. Technically, and a philosophy of life espousing humanity's, get this, recent intrusion. 
recent intrusive evolutionary origin into nature's long-standing sacred existence. Environmentalism is a political, social, economic, and religious system of thought that gives primary concern to preserving the equilibrium of nature on a global scale. That's a mouthful. I know it is. So let's simplify things and let's just go to those biblical points. Uh, one through six. Let's go ahead and look at those right now. Point number one about environmentalism from the Bible is the Bible authoritatively talks about the environment. The Bible authoritatively talks about the environment. Because, like I said, maybe you heard the title, What does the Bible say about environmentalism? And your first thought was, Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about environmentalism. Well, yeah, it does. Because all the presuppositions for the belief system of environmentalism are addressed in the Bible specifically. So these six biblical presuppositions that I'm going to highlight right now, I chose them purposefully because they intersect and they collide with the worldview of environmentalism as we know it today. And I didn't just come up with these six points. I mean, I I did a lesson on this about ten years ago to a bunch of high schoolers. I was kind of ahead of the curve at the time. Saw it coming, so I want to reiterate for us. The Bible authoritatively talks about the environment. This is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. If you are a Christian and you think the Bible doesn't address environmentalism, then you need to understand what uh, the doctrine of biblical sufficiency is. The church has held it for 2,000 years. It just means that everything that we need to know about life and godliness can be found in Scripture. The Bible is sufficient. And environmentalist issues affect our daily living. And even more so. So the Bible is sufficient to address this issue. The Bible authoritatively talks about the environment. Specifically A, B, and C. Uh, The Bible talks about the creation of the environment. The origin of the environment. That's clear. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3. The Bible specifically addresses... The creation of the environment. Water, the earth, the land, the air, the atmosphere, the stratosphere, the plants, the animals, the weather, humanity. It's all there in Scripture very clearly. So the Bible talks about creation of the environment. Point B, the Bible talks about its conservation, the conservation of the environment, the preservation of the environment, the sustaining of the environment and all of God's creation all over Scripture. Just one verse, Hebrews 1.3. Listen to this. Hebrews 1.3, this is amazing because it's talking about Jesus Christ as the God-man who is full deity, creator of the universe. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. That Jesus, the Son of Man, is the creator of all things. Next verse, verse 3. Well, what about Jesus, the creator of all? He didn't just create everything. He sustains His creation. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. Present tense, by the way, on the verb uphold. Literally, He is upholding, present tense, continually sustaining and preserving His creation. Amazing. Not just creation, but preservation. Jesus, God, is sustaining and conserving His creation which includes the environment. And finally, the Bible addresses authoritatively not just the creation, the conservation of the environment, but also the consummation of the environment. It has a purpose. It's going somewhere. It is not meaningless. Evolution makes everything meaningless. God's creation makes everything with a purpose. And everything is done in accordance with God's glory, God's purpose, and even with creation, the environment, all of it has a purpose. It's going somewhere and it will fulfill a purpose. And all of it points to Christ and the glory of God Himself as the Almighty, Eternal Creator. 
A couple passages I put down there, we don't have time to read. Psalm 96. The Psalms are just filled with this very topic. You talk about environmentalism, read the Psalms. Read Job. Read the poetic books. It's everywhere. Revelation 21 and 22 tells us the consummation of all creation. For God's glory in His presence, preserved eternally forever. So yes, the Bible authoritatively talks about the environment. That's an overview. There are specifics. Point number two. God created all things in six days, literally. God created all things in six days. As I was reading these environmentalists, many of them, there were common themes that rose to the surface in terms of things they believe. And all the environmentalists, they are evolutionists. They don't believe in creation as we know it. They are evolutionists. They are secular, Darwinian, humanistic evolutionists. Hardcore. The Bible says God created all things in six days. Evolution is not true. I kept reading that book and it just kept saying, evolution is a fact. Evolution is a fact. Evo- no, it's not. Hebrews 11.3 Why do I believe in creation? Why do I believe in a literal six days of creation? Because it's scientific? No. Because it can be proven? No. Why? By faith. That's Hebrews 11.3. I wasn't there. Nobody else was either. We don't know what happened. God revealed what happened. He was the only eyewitness and He told us. That's Hebrews 11.3. That's why I believe the Bible literally and the story about creation. Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we Christians, we believers, understand literally, we know that the universe was created by the Word of God. He is making reference to Genesis 1 when God created everything with the Word. The Word. God said, boom, it was so. We understand and know that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen, the physical reality, physical creation, was not made out of things that are visible. They are made out of nothing. Creatio ex nihilo. Creation out of nothing. God is a God of miracles. Amazing. Well, what did God create in six days? Well, the earth, plants, animals, and humans. God created the earth in six days. Well, how do you know? Because the Bible says so. Uh, And God spoke to Moses. God spoke to Moses and God told Moses... Uh, Moses, go tell these two million Jews this. And he gave the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments is this verse. God spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord your God. In six days, the Lord, I, Yahweh, made or created the heavens and the earth. Wow. That's what the Bible says. Now notice this is taken not from Genesis chapter 1. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 11 because... Liberal theologians would have us say, well, Genesis 1 and 2, it's poetic and therefore you can't take it literally and it's metaphorical. And you can't take it at face value. Well, I'm not quoting Genesis 1 and 2. And by the way, if you read it in the Hebrew, it's not poetic. It is history, it is narrative, it is fact. But here, this is Exodus chapter 20. This is in the midst of all the Ten Commandments. And this statement about the creation of the world in six days is just as literal and just as historical as the rest of the Ten Commandments. And God said it. God said to Moses. Was he lying or God didn't know? No, God knows. Created the world in six days. There is no evolution. What else did he create? He created plants. He cre- they didn't evolve. He created them. It's not the Big Bang. Nothing just blew up one day and became everything. That's the Big Bang. Zero times zero equals everything? I don't think so. That's bad math. Bad science. God created the plants. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Get this. And it was so. I teach Genesis at a seminary and we study Genesis 1-3 through 3 in the original Hebrew language. It's kind of fun. There's a little phrase that occurs seven times in Genesis chapter 1. And it was so. It happens with every corresponding day of creation. God said, I'm going to create this. And it says God created this. And then there was morning and then there was evening. Day 1. Morning, 
or evening, morning, day two, evening, morning, day three. And there's this phrase on every day at the end. And it was so. And it was so. And it was so. You know what that means in Hebrew? The Hebrew literally of, and it was so, is it really happened that way. It really happened that way. It really, literally, that's what it means. And then Christians come along and say, well, you can't take Genesis 1 literally. Oh, really? Is that why God bent over backwards seven times to say, no, it really happened that way. It really happened that way. It really happened that way. God's trying to tell us something. Created plants, created animals. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth. And it was so, and he also created the fishies and the birdies in that same account. So God created the animals. They didn't evolve. And then finally God created uh, the crown of his creation, the highest of his creation, and that is humanity, human beings. They didn't evolve from animals. Human beings are the highest form of life. The highest form of life. The most valued, sacred life. Human beings created directly by God. Then God said, let us. The Trinity is talking amongst itself. Let us make man, humanity in our own image after our likeness. They will be God-like in some ways. So God created humanity in His own image. In the image of God, He created Him. Male and female, He created them. Humanity did not evolve. They were made in the image of God. Clear as can be. And then God gave him a purpose when he created him. Genesis 1.26 all the way through 1.28. After he created him, God said, And let humanity, let them, man and woman, have dominion, rule, power, exercise authority. That's what that means. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Go ahead, smash that spider. Anyway. So God created all things in six days. Point number three. Humanity, from the Bible, biblical point of view, humanity is God's most precious creation. We just said that. Humanity is the crown of creation. You've got to turn to Psalm 8. I, I can't pass it up. Oh, that's right. We don't have a fellowship meal, so we'll go till 1 o'clock today. Anyway, go to Psalm 9. No, I'm just kidding. Psalm 8 goes into detail by King David. 3,000 years after Adam and Eve were first created. And he writes this divinely inspired psalm on how precious the human race is. Humanity is God's most precious creation. More precious than animals, plants, trees, dirt, the earth, the atmosphere, the stratosphere, and even angels. Really. Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic is your name? You are great. Verse 3, when I consider the heavens, man, God, you created the heavens, the stars, huge from David's point of view, this infinite universe, all these planets, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained and created, what is man? What is pathetic, piddly little man? Who am I in light of all of creation? It's a rhetorical question. He's amazed. What is man? that you should even think about Him. And the Son of Man, that that would care for Him. Not only do you think about Me, God, you care for Me. Yet Thou hast made humanity a little lower than God, says my translation. Lower than God, says the NASB. And you have crowned humanity with glory and majesty. Wow! That flies in the face of a basic environmentalist presupposition. They do not believe that humanity was directly created by God in God's image 
as the peak of all creation made with glory and majesty. They don't believe that. They reject that basic biblical understanding. This is biblical anthropology, it's called. Understanding the human race from God's point of view, the true and only point of view. Verse 6, God, Thou didst make humanity to rule over the works of Thy hands. The ruler of the earth. Not an intrusion among nature. Ruler of the earth. God's vice-regent on earth. Ruling over all the earth. Verse 7, ruling over all sheep and oxen and also over all the beasts of the field, over the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is Your name. That's biblical anthropology. Humanity is God's most precious creation. All humans have intrinsic value because they were made in the image of God. That's why abortion is wrong. Life begins at conception. Psalm 51 verse 5 says so. Luke chapter 1 says so. Psalm 139 says so. Every human made in the image of God. The baby in the womb is more precious than the egg that belongs to the bald eagle. Let's just get the record straight in terms of our values and what God has said. All humans have intrinsic value. The other point there is that God created everything in nature for humanity. God created everything else for humanity. The earth, nature, was made for man, not the reverse. I'm reading all these environmentalist books and the common theme was that humanity, the human race, was a Johnny-come-lately of an intrusion into nature and messed everything up. We could just get rid of Humanity, or restrain humanity, or make humanity smaller, or confine them to a quarter of the earth, everything would be fine. That's a faulty worldview. God created everything for man, for humanity. What for? To manage, to rule over, to take care of, to be a steward of, to use in many practical ways, and also to enjoy. First Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Paul said this, Everything created by God. And by the way, he, he just was talking about meat. Animals for food. That's what he was talking about. And there were some who infiltrated the church who said, don't eat meat. Don't eat meat. It's unspiritual to eat meat. Or this kind of meat. And Paul says, no, that's wrong. Vegetarianism, strict vegetarianism is wrong. If you're saying you can't eat meat, that's wrong. But rather, everything, he's, he's talking about animals for food. Everything created by God is good. Hamburgers, in and out, I agree. It's good. Double, double. No, make that a triple, triple. Everything created by God is good. Nothing in terms of food is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for your provision. By those who believe, see, who know the truth, who understand this, who have a biblical frame of reference. We know who the Creator is. By those who believe and know the truth. For it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. That's why you should pray every time before you eat. Prayer. So God created everything else for humanity to manage, use, and enjoy. Here's some examples. So God gave us animals. God gave animals to humanity. Evolution says, nah. Humanity came a lot later and they were just messing everything up and they should just leave the animals alone. No, that's not a biblical point of view. God gave animals to humanity to manage, to use, and enjoy. Here are some biblical examples of animals being used in a way sanctioned by God, some might surprise you. First of all, God gave animals to human beings for eating, for food. The menu is huge. 
Noah gets off the ark. God says to Noah, Noah, get this. Plenty of food out there. Genesis 9.5, quote, from God to Noah. Every moving thing that is alive, every animal, every reptile, every creature, every insect. Insect, yes. My wife went to Cambodia and the only thing I remember is when she came home, they could have all the cockroaches they wanted to eat. Fried cockroaches. And she had pictures of it. I was like, oh, oh, no thank you. But anyway, this is what God's telling Noah. Every moving thing that is a a creature that is non-human, that is alive, shall be food for you. I give all to you. Seriously. Chocolate-covered ants. I mean, like I said, the, the, the menu is endless. Hamburger. Lamb chops. Salmon. Tuna. Sushi. No sushi. It said moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Oh, you had to kill it. That's right. You had to kill it. Get rid of its blood, then you eat it. You can't eat a living thing. You had to kill it. So God gave a full menu to know what to eat. Well, that's not in the New Testament. Yeah, it is. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 13. Peter the Apostle, starting the church, had a vision from God. In the vision, this huge, massive sheet came down out of the sky, and there are animals all over the sheet. Four-footed creatures. Primarily referring to the pig. Pig. Which was an unclean animal in Peter's mind at the time. And creeping and crawling things. And so all kinds of create animals are on the sheet. And then uh, listen to what God says to Peter. Arise, Peter. Kill and eat. <laughs> kill that pig. Pork chops. Bacon. Seriously. Arise, Peter. Kill and eat. And then Peter says, whoa, wait a minute. The pig? And God says, yeah, I've, I've made it clean. What God has cleaned, do not consider unholy anymore. You can eat anything. Shrimp. Whatever. It's yours. Wow, how liberating. That edict has not changed. Today God says the same thing to us. Arise, kill, and eat. Everything. Anything that moves. The neighbor's cat? No. The chihuahua next door? No. You need permission first. But anyway. God gave animals to people for food. God also gave animals to people for transportation. John chapter 12, verse 14. Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it and rode into town. He wasn't abusing the donkey. That's what God gave it for. All throughout the Bible, farmers used animals to farm, to plow, to to get food. Beasts of burden doing work for humanity, for farming. God gave animals to human beings as pets. Did you know that? I learned that this week. Job chapter 30, verse 1. Job is talking about uh, the sheepdogs helping out the shepherd. Those, no doubt, were pets that were trained, helping them out. I used to live on an animal farm, and I had a dog that was I trained to be a sheepdog. Tried to, anyway. It was a Great Dane, and he would actually eat the little sheeps or pigs if he caught them, but that wasn't good. Um, but for pets, dogs, God gave animals to humanity for clothing. First seen in Genesis 3.21. Adam and Eve sin. They run away, guilty, hide in the bushes, cover themselves with fig leaves. God says, that is not sufficient. That does not cover your sin. Human works doesn't cut it. I will take care of that. I will do the work myself. When there is sin, there must be death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And it says that God killed an animal and made animal skins and covered Adam and Eve as an atonement, a substitution. Somebody had to die for their sins. What was it? It was an innocent animal who died as a substitute for them. And God clothed them with animal skin. And he had to kill an animal to do it. Have you ever heard of PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals? One of the greatest, loudest, vociferous, craziest advocates is Ricky Lake, who was the female Jerry Springer. She's a vocal person for PETA for and the, the 
people for the ethical treatment of animals. And basically what they believe is that animals are more sacred, or at least equally as sacred as human life. And under no circumstances should we be messing with animals. They shouldn't be killed. They shouldn't be hunted. So I saw a video, I can't remember if it was CNN or whatever, of Ricky Lake who was on the street and she was literally, as people were coming out of uh, the building, a bunch of Hollywood people in their fur coats and their fur scarves and whatever else, with animal skins they were wearing, she was chasing after them, cussing them down and spitting on their coats. Spitting on them. Because she believed, no, you can't be using animal skin for clothing. The Bible says, yeah, actually you can. Uh, what else do they use animals for? For interior decorating. For something as superfluous as that. As self-seeking as that. Yeah, really. Interior decorating. This is the decorating of God's tabernacle to Moses. He told Moses, this is how I want it built. I don't want it, I don't want it a shambles. I want it looking beautiful. I want everything covered with glistening gold and jewels and with precision. And I want you to spend years... Well, actually, that was with the temple. But great detail and precision for even the tabernacle. That was the portable temple. So the Bible tells us that when they were making the curtains, this is what God required. Okay, Moses, when you make the curtains for the tabernacle, I want designs, I want it dyed, I want certain colors, and I want it made of the following skins. I want it made from ram's skin, which means you've got to go kill a whole bunch of innocent rams to do it. And I want it from goat's hair. You've got to go catch a whole bunch of goats. That's a challenge. I've tried to do that. Go get a bunch of goats and cut their hair and use that to, uh, for the curtains. And also, get this, and I want you to make some of the curtain out of porpoise skin. You mean kill the dolphins? Save the whales! No, kill the dolphins. That's what God said. Porpoise skin. That's Exodus 25 and 26. Very interesting. God gave animals to humanity. And finally, this is the most important one. God gave animals to humans for sacrifice. For sacrifice. This is grisly. This is ghastly. This is almost unconscionable in our modern era to see what God required. The biggest Jewish holiday of the year, Passover, first began in Exodus chapter 12 from which the Christian celebration of communion came from. In the day of Moses, 1400 B.C., God enacted the Passover meal that was to be celebrated by every practicing Jewish family. And here's what He said in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. First month of the year. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. On the 10th of this month, okay, on the 10th day, this is what you're supposed to do. Get a lamb. Get the cutest, most perfect little lamb you can find from either the sheep or the goats. One year old, male, cute thing. Make it your pet for four days. Let all the kids get used to it and name it and get attached to it. Uh-oh. The tenth day. Take a lamb for yourselves. According to the Father's household, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be unblenished male, a year old. Take it from the sheep or the goats. Keep it until the 14th day, four days later. Then what? Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel with the children is to kill the lamb at twilight. Wow. Ghastly. Literally, what they would do is they'd take a knife usually and just go straight for the throat, straight across of that little lamb. That's not the end of it, though. It gets more grueling. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood. So you kill this innocent little lamb instantaneously with a knife, slitting its throat, blood squirting all over the place, and then you start squeezing it so that the blood goes into a pan. Peter would not like this. Then take the blood, 
Put it on two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So spread the blood all over the place, like with a paintbrush, on the front of your house, on the porch, outside. And they should, and then eat the flesh that same night. Roasted with fire, cook it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of the raw, uh, any of it raw or boiled. Roasted with fire, but its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left until morning, burn it. Then I will go through, oh, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. If I don't see blood on the front porch of their houses, I go by. Wow. God was angry. God was angry at sin. And the consequence of sin is death. And there's no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. That's bad news. The good news is God provided a substitute. Get a lamb, innocent, didn't do anything. That lamb will die in your place. That will appease God's wrath. He'll pass you by. God will forgive you because He vented His wrath towards an innocent lamb. That is a prediction of the Lord Jesus Christ who would come 1,400 years later when John the Baptist would point his finger publicly at Jesus Christ as He began His ministry and He yelled at the top of His lungs, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the fulfillment of this prophecy in Exodus chapter 12. Someone who was innocent, did not deserve to die, who would die in the place of sinners to appease the wrath of a holy God. So God gave animals to human beings as sacrifices. Very important. Uh, The next point, God also gave natural resources to humanity. Natural resources. Everything you can dig up and find in the earth, God said use it. As a matter of fact, when God wanted Noah to build the ark, He said use a whole bunch of gopher wood. And man, you're going to need a lot of it. You talk about deforestation. That's a lot of gopher wood. A, a boat as big as a football field? Gopher wood. When he was building the tabernacle, God said he used cedar wood. Oh, when he was building the temple, get cedar wood from Lebanon. They shipped it down from Lebanon, down the rivers or down the water. They used olive wood. They used cypress wood. They used gold, silver, bronze, precious stones. They used wood for the fires, for the sacrifice. They burned the wood, all these natural resources that God gave to humanity to use as stewards. And then finally, God gave the very earth to humanity to manage to use, and to enjoy. Point number four. God cursed creation because of sin. God cursed, or I could say it a different way, God cursed the environment because of sin. Or I could say it this way, God cursed nature because of sin. Or I could say it this way, God cursed the climate because of sin. That's if you take Genesis 1-3 through literally. As I'm reading all this literature and I read uh, Gore's 400-page book, He's talking about how the earth has fallen apart, all this destruction, all these earthquakes, all these tidal waves, all these monsoons, and he keeps coming back to the same thing. And what is causing this is global warming. What's causing this is climate change. What is causing this is humanity. What is causing this is the industrial revolution. What is causing this is your automobile and overpopulation. You're having too many kids. Literally, that's what he kept saying. I'm thinking, no, earthquakes have been happening for quite a long time, long before the industrial revolution. Tidal waves, monsoons, Tornadoes. These were all happening since the time of Genesis chapter 3 when God cursed creation. He cursed the earth. He cursed the environment. He subjected it to futility. That's why we have problems. In the video, Inconvenient Truth, 2005, Gore says that Katrina, the hurricane that happened in New Orleans that devastated that area, happened because of global warming, because of man-made global warming. And I'd say no. Uh, the hurricane happened because God knew it was going to happen and it happened as a result of the curse of the earth in Genesis chapter 3. So that's what I talk about, a worldview. Why things happen, how you interpret reality. God cursed creation because of sin. 
Genesis 3.17, after they sinned, God said, Cursed is the land because of you. Literally, Adam. Cursed is the earth because of you and all that that entails. The earth. Romans 8.20 and 22, Paul talks about this. The creation at the beginning was subjected to futility. We are in a state of disequilibrium and disarray in, in humanity, in nature, in the environment. The creation was subjected to corruption by God. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's what Paul says. Why are there earthquakes? Why are there tornadoes? Because God cursed this earth as a result of sin. The wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23 Things die. Plants die. People die. Animals die. Why do things die? Because of sin. Because of God's curse. What is this called? From a scientific point of view, this is called the second law of thermodynamics. What's that? It's the law of increasing universal entropy. In other words, everything's dying and falling apart. This comes from the curse. This is very scientific. By the way, this point, God cursed creation because of sin. This is biblical metaphysics or biblical historiography, if you want to call it. God cursed creation because of sin. Number five, God determines and controls the weather and the environment. God determines the weather. God determines the climate. God determines the environment. Some scripture, Psalm 89, 8 and 9. The psalmist says, O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are? You are omnipotent. You rule, get this, you rule the raging of the sea. God is in control of the sea. And even what is tumultuous and stormy, God is in charge. Remember Jesus on the sea in the midst of the storm? Hush, be still. Instantaneously, the seas, the very climate, obeys the Word of God. God is in control of the weather. He is the weather man, said that great theologian Keith Green. That was a joke. But anyway, God determines and controls the weather and the environment. Uh, the psalmist goes on. He rules the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, God stills them. The heavens are God's. The earth also is God's. The world and all that is in it. He founded them. He created them all. He is in charge. He's the weatherman. He is the great meteorologist. Psalm 78:26. God caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. There it is. Why do winds blow the way they blow? Because God's in charge of it. And by His power, by God's power, He let out the south wind. He's in charge of the whole structure and all how it goes. Genesis 8.22. This is the global warming verse, by the way, in the Bible. This is it. God just devastated the entire universe, the whole world with a flood of water that rose way stories above the highest mountains on planet Earth killed every living thing except eight human beings and all the animals that Noah could fit in the ark. And all the fish survived because they were in the water for the most part. They were in the ark for a year and 14 days, came off the ark, and God made a promise to Noah. Noah, I am never going to destroy the world again in a flood. There will never be a universal flood again. And to let you know my promise is true and perpetual and continual, I will put a rainbow in the sky. So every time you see a rainbow to this day, according to the Bible, Genesis chapter Nine, God put the rainbow in the sky to remind us He would never flood the entire world again. And then He gave this promise. He, he promised Noah, I'm going to give as a matter of fact, I'm going to give stability to the climate. I'm going to give stability to the atmosphere, to the stratosphere, to the earth, to nature, to the weather. And here's God's promise. And this is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. Here's what God said to Noah. While the earth remains, that is huge. 
as long as this planet Earth remains, here's a promise I make to you. From God, seed time and harvest. You know what those are? These are seasons of the year. Cycles. Seed time and harvest. Cold and heat. Global cooling, global warming. That is literally what God is talking about. The environment. Summer and winter. Day and night shall not cease. Here's His promise. Climate and weather is seasonal. Climate and weather is cyclical. And at the same time, the climate and the weather, as long as the earth remains, shall be constant. That's a promise. That undermines everything about modern-day man-made global warming, just so you know, right from God's Word. Last one, Ecclesiastes 11.5, talking about God as the weatherman. Uh, God says in Ecclesiastes, just as you do not know the path of the wind, that's meteorology, just as humans don't know the path of the wind or how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you humans do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Amazing. Ecclesiastes 11.5. So God determines and controls the weather and the environment. He's the weatherman number six. If you have a worldview and you want a proper worldview, then you need a proper eschatology. Eschatos is the Greek word for the last things, the future things, how the world is going to end. Eschatos, eschatology, the study of last things. You need a biblical eschatology. Al Gore and all environmentalists, they have an eschatology. They tell us how they think the world is going to end. And they say a couple of things. They say that the world, for the most part, will continue on perpetually. This earth, this planet earth, this same earth, could continue on hopefully for millions and even billions of years. On the other hand, they say that inevitably or possibly imminently, humanity, the entirety of humanity could be destroyed along with all plants and animals. We are on the very brink of the edge of universal destruction for all of life on planet Earth. I kid you not. This is what they say. God says, nope. Those are wrong views about eschatology and this world and the current heavens and the earth, the atmosphere and what God's plan are. So point number six is God will create a new heaven and a new earth. This earth right that we're on, it is temporary. We're still to be good stewards of it, but it is temporary. God has a bigger plan, a better plan. Psalm 102, Oh my God of old, you laid the foundations of the earth. You created the earth and the heavens. They are the work of your hands, God, but even they will perish. The earth and the heavens are going to perish, but you, God, you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away into non-existence. But you are the same and your years have no end. Jesus said point blank, Mark 13:31, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will remain forever. Peter even tells us, well, how's it going to pass away? In other words, God is going to destroy this current earth. Did you know that? He is. How's He going to do it? With real, divine, global warming. What are you talking about? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. Listen to this. This is where Peter tells us how eventually the world is going to be destroyed. There will be the rapture. Then there will be the tribulation. Then there will be the return of Christ to rule with the saints for a thousand years on earth. And then Jesus and God the Father will destroy this current planet Earth to create a new one. Here's how He's going to destroy it. Second Peter 3, 10-12 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements, even the molecules, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you, Christian, to be living in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening or waiting for 
the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Wow, it's amazing. But it's going to happen because God said so. So these are my proposed biblical presuppositions that should help us ground ourselves to be discerning people as we are inundated with information from all over the place in the world in which we live with every kind of conceivable ism, philosophy, and ideology. The Bible is sufficient to help us think properly. So commit those six biblical presuppositions to memory if you're a Christian. And then finally, number seven, well, what about a practical response regarding all this environmentalism stuff and the hype and all that's coming out? Well, real simple. As a Christian, just be discerning. That's all. This is a matter of information. Al Gore said that was his goal. He just wants to disseminate information and convince people to think a certain way. And when they will think a certain way, they will act a certain way, live in a certain way, and believe a certain way. It's all about what you think. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul tells Christians, examine everything. Examine, scrutinize everything that comes your way. Coming down the pike. On the internet, television, book, don't believe anything. Be skeptical at first. Examine it. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good or true. And abstain from every form of evil. False teaching, whether it's religious or non-religious, if it's false teaching, it is evil. Abstain from it. Put it away. Think on things that are true. Philippians chapter 4. Don't believe every spirit, said 1 John 4.1. But examine everything. Make sure that which is true that you believe. So be discerning, people. Use the Bible as your grid. Let me help you with a little bit of discerning. Here's just a couple of facts I wanted to run by you in terms of being discerning in this whole dialogue. Here's some facts that I came up with in my studies. Okay, it's just a fact. You don't need to write them down. Uh, seven facts. Fact number one, Al Gore is not a scientist. I'm not making fun of him, but that's just a fact. The area he's trying to cover is very scientific and it's a very specialized science. He is not a scientist. Uh, two, there has not been one single solitary recorded human death to date due to global warming as far as we know. If it's so devastating, it's going to end the world. How come nobody's died from it yet? Number three, the 1930s was the hottest decade in U.S. history according to meteorologists. 1930s, Al Gore in his book said it was the 1990s. No, it's the 1930s by far. Uh, number four, here's another thing they say. But here's the fact to combat that. They say that pretty much all scientists uh, agree that global warming is true and real. Man-made global warming. Here's the fact. Not all scientists believe in global warming. Not all qualified scientists believe in global warming. That's a fact. That's why you've got to be discerning. It's who, who's feeding you the information? What are this guy's credentials? Who said this? Why did he say that? Let me give, I could literally give you hundreds of qualified scientists, meteorologists, climatologists, cosmog- and on and on it goes who don't believe in man-made global warming. Here's just one guy. Dr. Richard Lindzen, who has written extensively on global warming. Who is he? He got his Ph.D. at Harvard many moons ago, before I was even born. Currently, he is a professor at MIT. That's a good school. Isn't it, Chin? That's where she, her hubby went to school. Currently a professor at MIT, and listen to this, in atmospheric physics and meteorology specializing in dynamic meteorology, atmospheric tides, ozone photochemistry, whatever that is. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Meteorological Society, and a whole bunch of zillion other societies I couldn't spell. And here's just one quote from him. Quote, Global warming is a largely political issue without scientific basis. End quote. I didn't say that. This scientist guy who does this for a living did Here's another quote. 
You ever seen the Weather Channel? It's on your cable. The guy that started the Weather Channel, he's a meteorologist. Been a meteorologist for decades. His name is John Coleman. He's a, currently he's still a weatherman down in San Diego. He started, he created the Weather Channel. Here's what he, he's a meteorologist by profession. Here's what he thinks of global warming. Global warming is the greatest scam in history. That's what he thinks. I'm not telling you what I think. That's what he thinks. I am amazed, appalled, and highly offended by it. Global warming, it is a scam. Some dastardly scientists with environmental and political motives manipulated long-term scientific data to create an illusion of rapid global warming. Other scientists of the same environmental wacko type jumped into the circle to support and broaden the research to further enhance the totally slanted, bogus global warming claims. Their friends and government steered huge research grants their way to keep the movement going. Soon they claimed to be a consensus. Then he goes on and on and on. He says, I say this knowing you probably won't believe me. A mere TV weatherman, a meteorologist challenging a Nobel Prize, Academy Award, and Emmy-winning former vice president of the United States, so be it. But I have read dozens of scientific papers. I have talked with numerous scientists. I have studied. I have thought about it. I know I am correct. There is no runaway climate change. The impact of humans on the climate is not catastrophic. Our planet is not in peril. I am incensed by the incredible media glamour, the politically correct silliness, and rude dismissal of counter-arguments by the high priest of global warming as the temperature rises and polarized cap melting, coastal flooding, and the superstorm patterns all fail to occur as predicted someday, then everyone will come to realize we have been duped. The sky is not falling. All natural cycles, drifts in climate are as much, if not more, responsible for any, any climate changes currently underway. I strongly believe that the next 20 years are equally as likely to see a cooling trend as they are to see a warming trend. By the way, in the 1970s, on the front of Newsweek magazine, the world was warning us that uh, we are in a cooling stage, global, clooming, uh, global cooling, and we could have a massive ice age on our hands. And all he's saying is that weather is cyclical, that's all. goes up, goes down. goes up, goes down. The book of Job says that. And Genesis 8.22 said the same thing. So uh, be discerning. There are variant points of view out there from qualified scientific people. Uh, another response as Christians that we need to have, point B, and that's be a good steward. God gave the earth to humanity. We are stewards, which means it's not ours. This earth is not ours. Its resources is not, are not ours. We need to take care of it. And the best stewards of planet earth and all of its natural resources should be human beings, right? I mean, sorry, should be Christians. Christians. But what we mean by being good stewards is very different than an environmentalist means by being a good steward in many regards. So, but as a Christian, be a good steward of God's resources. We will be held accountable as God's Vice regions of planet Earth. So be discerning. Be a good steward. Uh, point C, don't panic. Many, the, when the next uh, sensationalist, fear-mongering statement you hear about the world is going to end with this or that, whether it's swine flu or the Ebola virus or Y2K or global warming and trying to put you in a, a frenzy and a panic and a whatever, and the world is going to end, don't panic. God is in control, especially for the Christian. You should know that. God is in control. He is sovereign. Christ is my Savior. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't panic, Christian. The next time you hear something like that that tends to put you in a panic as though the world is going to end, do this. Psalm 46.10, be still, stop. Stop thinking. Stop letting your mind race into hysteria. Stop. Be still and know that God is God. We can rest in Him. He is our rock. What is a rock? Stability. 
That's a great promise for the believer. So don't panic. And then finally, Christian, in the midst of all of this stuff, and not just environmentalism, anything coming down the pike. Stay focused. I want to close with this. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Christians, stay focused. Christians should not be debating with environmentalists, especially environmentalists who are not Christians, about global warming. I will never argue with an unbeliever about global warming. Never. Number one, I'm not going to convince them. Number two, it's not the greatest priority. I'm going to argue with a non-Christian if I have an opportunity for exchange dialogue with passion about who Jesus Christ is. The greatest threat imminent to humanity is not global warming. It is your sin that separates you from a holy God. That's what I mean by stay focused. So I'm not going to argue with an unbeliever about global warming. I will argue with a Christian about global warming. And, and I will say, let's reason from the Scripture. Let's learn from one another. Iron sharpens iron. But listen to this. Stay focused, Christian. Colossians chapter 3. 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, if you have been born again, if you have been saved from your sin, if you know Jesus Christ personally, man, that's good news. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep, present tense, keep seeking the things above as a lifestyle. That's where we are. We are in the heavens. That's our home. Get your eyes off of earth. We don't need to save the earth. Jesus came to save sinners, to take them to heaven. To be with Him. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Fix your mind. Fix your thoughts. Dwell on this. Set your mind on the things above. Heavenly things. Spiritual things. Biblical truths. The glories of God. Set your mind on the the things above. Not on the things that are of the earth. That are temporary. Ultimately meaningless. Why? Verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, and that will happen in the future when He comes, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Our life on earth, it is temporary. It is like a breath. Don't be preoccupied with this life, the riches it has to offer, and the problems it has to offer. Get your mind on Christ. Amen? Amen. With that, let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank You for this day. And God, I do thank You for the great truth of the sufficiency of Scripture and that biblical truth intersects with anything that we have to deal with in life. A system of thought, a way of life, a political movement, it doesn't matter. Thank You for the sufficiency of Scripture, the truth of Your Word that is living and active, penetrating hearts, minds, souls. And for the Christian, provides comfort and food and direction a light to our path, giving us direction in a very confusing world so that we can walk step by step, hand in hand with You. Help us to be a discerning people. Help us to be good stewards of the earth that You have given us as a gift. And help us to have the right priority in doing it. And that is, do it all for Your glory, for Your praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.